Welcome to Dr. Waffle and Friends, a podcast where we share personal writing and then chat about it. And now for the reading. I come from. I come from sticky humidity and honeysuckle, from piles of fallen leaves and sledding down steep streets. I come from catching fireflies in jars on summer evenings, from salamander-filled creeks, red clay earth, and windy roads through cow-filled pastures. I come from faculty kids playing capture the flag at department picnics. I come from reverence for a university that didn't admit women until it had to. I come from high school girls sneaking into fraternity parties. I come from y'all and honey and where are you from? I come from the centroid of Virginia, such that if you cut out the state and spun it around on the tip of your finger, it would be resting on my hometown. I come from Charlottesville. My childhood red brick and white pillar home was built on plantation fields, the big house in view out of my bedroom window. In a state where my parents' interracial marriage was declared legal by the Supreme Court only a year before we moved there. A Chinese Jewish 10 year old clad in colonial garb, I gave bicentennial tours of historic Court Square, the pride of Jack Jewett's ride, the shame of the slave block. I shielded myself from chink and African bubble lips by tuning it out and fitting in. I tagged along with my white Catholic friends to Sunday Mass, and I never saw the inside of my best friend's black Baptist church. Elementary school classmates fell away through academic tracking, populating AP classes with students who resided near the new high school built after desegregation in close proximity to affluent white families, a long bus ride away for the less fortunate and the darker-skinned. Where, in 1984, a high school newspaper article about 17 years after desegregation revealed typically unspoken racism— fanned the embers of frustration and exclusion, drew Black students out of classrooms to gather in the cafeteria, provoked early school closure, racist spray paint, rumors of weapons. Mobilization of administrators and student leaders. I was one who promoted peace and extended homeroom sessions. There was the day when those of us whose parents let us go to school felt outnumbered by button-wearing community members lining the halls. There was no violence, and together we fell back into relieved silence. Oh, Charlottesville, I learned to drive stick shift on your hilly streets. I learned to hike in the Blue Ridge Mountains. I learned to swim at the public pool in the black part of town. I learned to read and to play flute and to dance and to drink and to kiss within your city limits. 
I became an outspoken bisexual feminist activist and academic, a Californian. You became a haven for D.C. fleeing yuppies who renovated tattered homes and installed central air. You replaced my first employer, Mr. Donut, with fresh Korean cuisine. You transmuted ham biscuits into tapas. You incubated the Dave Matthews Band. You reopened the long-dormant Paramount Theater and hosted Yo-Yo Ma. You welcomed President Barack Obama, who spoke on the tree-lined pedestrian mall. You became so progressive, you thought things had changed. And now, your name is invoked at podiums and pulpits shorthand for Confederate monuments and armed white supremacists bearing tiki torches, for sacred Jewish scrolls snuck out of the synagogue for protection, for lives on the line, and one lost because they couldn't let the Nazis' chants fill your streets unanswered. Keeping company with Selma and Skokie and Ferguson. You hold complex meaning for those of us who know you and are a tragic Instagram for those who don't. My heart didn't used to feel heavy when I said it. I come from Charlottesville. Hello, Tanya. Hello, Deanna. (laughs) Thank you so much for that. That is really moving and wonderful and lovely. I just love that piece so much. And thank you for sharing it with us. Oh, thank you for giving me the opportunity. It was delightful to get to share it. Absolutely. So I'm going to grill you mercilessly about it, of course. Fantastic. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because that's what we do here. Um, But I guess we decided we wanted to, for these first two intro episodes, where we're each reading a piece for the first time, ask each other some standard questions just about the writing process. So before kind of digging into asking you really specific things about that essay, I wanted to start by just inviting you to say a little bit about your relationship with writing. Like, how did you get started? Has it changed over the years? How do you feel about the way you're writing right now? Oh my gosh, there is such an arc to my relationship with writing. I grew up in the shadow of a very talented older sister who was a fantastic writer and poet and artist and all kinds of things. And so I never felt very good about my writing. I always uh, felt like I was fumbling along and my, my journals from my youth are so boring. It's unbearable. It's, it's just not something that I enjoyed doing. And I really don't think I was very good at it, but I got through well enough. I, I never did second drafts of anything until my undergraduate thesis. And, uh, so I would just sort of write these things, um, you know, for, for school late at night and turn, turn in the first drafts and do, 
you know, kind of a good enough, but not great job on them. So I, I never really put any time or effort into writing, and I never felt very good about it. So of course, I became a professor where my entire career was dependent <laughs> on oh, writing. Yes, <laughs> yes indeed. <laughs> I, I always like a challenge. Mm-hmm. So, so I've written, I'm a, I'm a psychologist, and I re- write research studies mostly for work. But every so often, I've had opportunities to do more personal, personal narrative kinds of pieces. And... Then in my 40s, I somehow ended up going to a writing retreat at Esalen one weekend. I had just, I had had other plans for the weekend that fell through and I was like, I just have to go do something. Let me look around, see what there is. And there was a writing retreat that was taught by Ellen Bass. And Ellen Bass wrote this book, The Courage to Heal for Survivors of Childhood Sexual Abuse, and oh. which I am not, but I thought, my goodness, if Ellen Bass is doing this workshop, it will feel safe and it mm. will feel comfortable. So and sh- just mm-hmm. just to jump in yeah. real quick, sorry, Esalen, um, just for people who might not have heard of it, it's it's like a retreat center, right? Where they they do kind of like um, healing workshops and 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 some kind of quote unquote new age stuff, like right? Um, it's in yes. California, yes. Yeah. So Esalen has Esalen is in Big Sur. It is this retreat center on the cliffs overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And in its past, it did sort of more radical things mm. like Eston, you know, stuff that was right. more emotionally challenging and stuff. And now they mostly, you know, have retreats, but they grow their food. It's it's this sort of very cool, lovely place that I had never been to um, until this. It's retreat. where Don Draper goes in the last episode of Mad Men, right? Isn't that a spoiler S-line? alert for oh, Mad sorry. Men? But uh, yes. <laughs> well, no, I'm not, I've seen I'm it. Not, <laughs> I'm not going to say what happens to Don Draper at Esalen. It's just that he goes there. That's you can see that on the IMDb episode page, I think. So. <laughs> anyway, okay, so you're at Esalen and you're taking a workshop from Ellen Bass. Yes, and honestly. That helped to crack me open. And it really mm. did. It cracked me open and suddenly things started pouring out of me. And and I'm still not creative enough to make things up. So everything that I write is memoir. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just writing from my own life and my own experience. And and I have come to love writing. Mm. Uh, and it's so different from the relationship that I had with it for most of my life. Mm-hmm. That is really interesting. And it's also interesting to hear you say that you experience a difference between academic writing and other kinds of writing. Of course. I mean, that seems like a really obvious thing to say. I think even I said that last week. But I I really like the way you, you said something about it that's a little unusual or new to me anyway, right? That um, That you felt like the academic writing kind of came first and then you turned to creative writing memoir later because that's the opposite of the way I did it or the way I think some a lot of people I know do it. So it's really I know, interesting. I that, love the way yeah. you described it in the last episode because you're like, well, of course there was this and this and this. And I'm like, no, not for me, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we're having these conversations about writing, right? Because we all think that our own writing processes are the same for everybody, mm-hmm. right? That like, of course, that's the way you do it. And then, yeah, it's interesting to learn that other people are very different, like sometimes radically different. So mm-hmm. um, so what's your process like? Like, what do you, how do you actually sit down? Do you kind of write everything in a burst or do you plan things out? Do you sketch them or outline them? Do you do it in sessions? What's your general process like? 
I still am not so much about writing drafts of things. Um, mm. They, you know, this this piece that um, that that I read today really came out of my head, just fully, uh, fully created like mm-hmm. i don't know who comes out of zeus's head like someone out of zeus's athena head. right athena like yeah. athena out of <laughs> zeus's head like it just came out very fully formed i was actually driving um with my partner at the time and we were talking about there was this call for memoir pieces oh that's the other thing i should say um typically what i've done with m- what i write is i write memoir pieces and i perform them or, you know, just read them aloud uh, Uh at this place called Center Stage Theater in Santa Barbara, where they do this thing called personal stories, which is sort of moth-like, but a little bit more produced than that. So, you Mm -hmm. know, we rehearse and things. And so when they put a call out, then I write something. And that's sometimes how I write. So they had put a call out and I thought, oh, I wonder what I'm going to write about. Maybe I'll write about this thing, or maybe I'll write about what happened in Charlottesville, because it was Mm, very mm -hmm. much on my mind. And my my partner said, I think you're going to write about Charlottesville. And that's all it took. I, I was sitting in the passenger seat, and I grabbed my phone, and I opened up a note, and it just poured out. Wow. And I made, I did a little tiny bit of revising on it after that, but it's mostly what it was here. I should also say that there's an activity that I do um, sometimes, especially part of diversity training and things like that, which, Mm -hmm. which is this activity called I Come From, that has you describe where you come from in these uh, sort of imaginative terms. And so it started out in the format really of and I've and I've done this a number of times where I talk about, you know, sort of where I come from, but then it just kept going. That's great. So those writing prompts and like, uh, I don't want to say I'm skeptical about writing exercises because I'm not in theory. I just actually l- had lunch with a writer today uh, who said that she uses, and I was kind of impressed to hear that she used writing exercises and prompts like from a book. I thought, oh, once you're like a published writer and at a certain level of fame and success and all that, you don't need that kind of stuff anymore. Um, so I think that's really interesting that that prompts can can work so well for people. I've never really done them myself, but I'm kind of intrigued. So I like the fact oh, that I love writing prompts. And in fact, the workshops, the writing workshops that I go to always have prompts and then yeah. I end up writing something from it. And in, in fact, I apparently I write best in response to requests because yes, yeah. the um I ended up writing a play once because somebody wrote me an email that said, dear playwright. And I was like, well, I don't think I'm a playwright. I've never written a play. <laughs> and then I called them and they said, well, I don't know. It seems like maybe you've got one in you. And then I got on an airplane. And by the time I landed, I had written a play. <laughs> oh I mean, would that work with anything? Like if I sent you an email that said, dear heart surgeon, I don't know. <laughs> is that all the tanks? <laughs> it, it does work with song lyrics also. So mm. I had a friends say, I'd like for you to write a song about this Buddhist concept to the tune of you light up my life. And I was like, I can do that. Or, you know, so. Hmm. Right. I remember you wrote, you wrote me a song last year. Oh, do you remember that? Yes. Yes. Maybe we need was to it for your birthday? A, yeah, I think so. I, yeah, I think it must mm. have been my birthday. What else? I don't think it was just randomly out of nowhere. Although <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but you need, we need to dig that up again and put it on a future episode of Dr. Waffle and Friends. Um, oh, indeed. Yeah, we may, to- maybe maybe I'll do some maybe I'll do some songs on Dr. Waffle and Friends. That would be too, incredibly and, yeah, fun. Be I would fun. love that. <laughs> I would love that. Um, 
So so the next question, actually, you already kind of answered, although maybe not entirely, and that was, what's it like for you reading your work aloud? And I guess you told us you actually have done that from the very beginning. But I guess I'll, I'll change the question a little bit and put a spin on it and ask, what is it like for you to read your work aloud in this context? Um, and I'll I'll say for those of people behind the scenes listening to this, um, that Tanya actually recorded, I did this too with my piece, recorded a version um, ahead of time. And then, and then I, and then Tanya asked me to read my piece aloud to her right before we did the podcast interview. And so I did the same thing for her this week. So we've got kind of two versions. And I had said to you that I thought that the version that you recorded was very theatrical in the sense of like performed. It was very dramatic and it had lots of like actorly inflection. It was marvelous. It's just like kind of this beautiful, like a, a soliloquy almost, right? Um, and then I said, let's try doing it a different way that's kind of more casual and we'll see which one we like better. So I don't know which one we're going to end up using. So <laughs> so maybe um, if if we did use the more theatrical one, then people will know what I'm talking about. But um, I guess that comes out of the fact that you actually started out by reading your work aloud, right? And so you said you actually would rehearse it and practice it and make, and it would, you know, come out as this kind of dramatic piece. Yes. So can you reflect a little bit about kind of different ways of reading? Um, mm -hmm. You know, does it feel different to read it more extemporaneously rather than in a more kind of polished um, or practiced manner? Which do you like better? Or do you notice things that are different about the two different techniques? So I'm going to start by answering the much simpler first question that you decided not to ask, which is just what is it like for me to read my okay, work? Okay, sure. Because, Absolutely. <laughs> but actually, I want to turn it around and say, it's the only way that this that my work is available usually is if mm. people hear me read it because I do not publish these things. Mm -hmm. And I I've been reflecting on this because there is something about the things that I write and because they're memoir pieces that I feel like they are best read by me in my voice because I don't know how they would sound to somebody else reading mm -hmm. them in their own heads, in their own voice. And maybe I don't trust the words on the page enough that it would come across, mm. but I feel like I want people to hear it as I hear it. Right. Um, so something like that. So, so I like reading it aloud mm -hmm. and I'm not sure what it would be like. I think it would be scarier for me to share it on mm. paper. Hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, it's like almost a literalization of the word voice. Like we think of voice mm -hmm. in writing as something that's writerly or something about the words on the page, but imagining it as somebody reading it and it kind of echoing in their head. But you're, you mean quite literally, like these are your voice, like you want them to be your actual voice as well, which yes. is interesting. In, that makes sense In to me. fact, my very favorite way to engage with books is to listen to memoir that's read by the author. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I started doing that with the Michelle Obama book, um, mm -hmm. on becoming, is that, is that what it's called? On becoming some becoming anyway, something with becoming mm -hmm. in the title. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I actually found, I actually had the opposite reaction. I was so distracted by the fact that I was like, Oh, it's Michelle Obama. And she's talking to me and I'm in the tub and I'm naked. <laughs> it actually kind of freaked me out a little bit. So I stopped and then I went and read it, the actual paper book instead. 
maybe I could do it with somebody other than Michelle Obama, right? Somebody I'm not well, so like in awe of. Right. Whatever. Well, see, now, now I'm going to have to share too much information already. Um, so... I I used to live at a place with a pool in a private enough yard that I could swim with nothing on. Mm-hmm. And that is my favorite way to swim. And so, but I also have um, a waterproof iPod shuffle and waterproof little, um, little, uh, ear pods or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I would spend the summers just swimming, listening to, people reading their own memoirs. And so I would, I would be like, this summer, I'm swimming naked with Bruce Springsteen, or now I'm <laughs> swimming naked with Trevor Noah. Or anyway, so I, I have spent a lot of time naked swimming. in the water with, with lots of people. <laughs> that is, that is awesome. So you, you clearly do not have the same block that I have <laughs> about this very process. Okay, so you've just reminded me, and we'll get back to the script in a second, but you've just reminded me that I need to listen to Trevor Noah read Born a Crime because Mm -hmm. I read it on the paper version, and he's so brilliant and amazing and funny and adorable that I'm sure it was an amazing audiobook. And like of all books, memoir books written in the last five years, I can't imagine one that would lend itself more to being read by the author than that one. So... That's yeah, fantastic. That yeah, yes, I bet. highly I recommend. I love him so much. I've seen him um, do stand up live too, which is incredible. Really, really great. Highly recommend. I have as well, and I don't like stand up at all, but I loved him. Right? Yes, I do like stand up, but still, I he was he just takes it to another level. I mean, he's just a freaking genius. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, okay, so back to our script. <laughs> um, we were talking about reading your work aloud and. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. Like I had to think about what is it like to take something that I think of very much as a written piece and translate it into another medium of speech. And yours is actually the opposite. You think of these as spoken pieces and they've never really been written or, you know, they're written down, but only so that you can read them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now you have to think of them as maybe people reading them. Although not really, because we are, you are reading them for us here on this podcast. So you know, only if we end up like having show notes or something, (laughs) end up like putting the transcript or whatever. Um, So what, I mean, the the kind of final standard intro question we have here, what made you want to do this podcast? So when you asked me that question, of course, it was you, it was your idea. And then you approached me and said, would you like to do this? So I, now I get to ask you, I mean, you did say a little bit about what your impetus was last week that you, you wanted to hear (laughs) <laughs> you wanted to hear me read aloud so that you could listen to it naked in the pool. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, you're, you, you, as you said, you're a kind, the kind of person who really likes listening to, to writing. And, um, mm-hmm. and I'm a person who's just very recently become a person who likes listening to writing. Um, so I guess my question for you is a kind of twist then, and that is, our original version or vision of this podcast was it was just going to be me reading my stuff and then you were going to interview me every week. And then it slowly morphed into, well, maybe we'll alternate and maybe you, you know, you have these memoir pieces and you could share them and we will go back and forth. So what made you decide that you wanted to do that? Like what made, what kind of tipped you over into deciding, oh, I think I, I want to be part of the I want to be part of the talent. <laughs> what is that? You know, that Hollywood expression um, and, and read my own work as well. So, yes. First, I was like, 
Not only do I want to hear you read your pieces, but I want everybody to be more <laughs> familiar with your work because I think you are so brilliant. Oh, and thank you. what I realized, yes, oh my gosh, absolutely. And and I have felt that way, you know, since I've known you for 35 years, like, <laughs> and, and I always say that you're one of my favorite people to be Facebook friends with because you just make me laugh out loud the things that you say. So... Then I realized that I had a pattern going here because I did one podcast before this um, called Prajna Sparks with a friend of mine who's a Dharma teacher. And it started because I said to her, oh my gosh, I want more people to hear your teachings. So we should do a podcast where you do teachings and then I can ask you about them. <laughs> and I thought, what is it with me that I just want to be the asker person? Like I also do things. So, <laughs> so maybe... You, you do a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we could have a little bit, you know, I, I, I could bring myself a little bit more into it, I guess. And, um, and I realized that one of the things I like about just being the asker person is that I don't have to have any expertise at all. I can just have a conversation and it's delightful. And I've realized how incredibly nervous I am about doing this podcast with you because I do indeed think you're brilliant. And you are not just a writer, you're a professor of literature. And I'm like, what on earth am I doing talking about writing when I have, like, I didn't even like writing until about 10 years ago. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, right. I'm a professor of literature. You're yes. like, yeah, right. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I honestly, like, I, okay, so just like, a slight detour just to say, um, I know we talked about imposter syndrome a little bit last week as well. Uh, you know, and I think what we came around to deciding last week, right, was that kind of everybody's allowed to write and everybody's allowed to think of themselves as a writer and everyone's allowed to reflect on the writing process. And I think that those questions are really interesting for everybody. But, you know, that's just a general thing. But also, I mean, this memoir piece that you that you shared with us is wonderful. Like, you know, these are and I read a bunch of the other pieces that you um that you've written or not written slash read performed uh as well. <laughs> and they're terrific. And so I you don't, you know, but the other thing, the more general thing is like as a literature professor, I have to say, like, I am just a I don't know, I I'm like a dumb dumb when it comes <laughs> when it comes to my own reading i just read for the plot i just like what happens next i'm not when i read something for pleasure i'm absolutely just turn off that part of my brain that thinks of it as a text with a capital t i'm just like it, when i have to analyze something cuz i'm going to write about it i mean do critical writing or i'm going to teach it or something like that i have to like put on this whole other helmet which is like oh, now I need to like actually analyze this. So I just enjoy writing. Like I enjoy listening to the thing that you just read. I'm not like analyzing it thinking like, oh, she should have done this here or that there, or this should be moved around or whatever. So I- oh, I'm, I'm not yeah. actually worried you're going to be critical because I think mm. you're very nice. I just feel like, <laughs> like in comparison to you, although I, honestly, I led with my strength because I feel like the piece that I did today mm. is both a good introduction to me because you get a little bit about my background, but it also is, I believe, the best thing I've ever written. Mm. And so just, you know, spoiler alert for the listeners, <laughs> it's just going to be downhill. It's all from downhill here. from here. 
<laughs> okay, but now I need to ask you another question, which is off script, sorry, but you've just made me very curious. And that is when you say that you like being the asker and that you feel kind of nervous being the person who's being asked about their own expertise or whatever, but you've done like a bazillion podcasts as the expert, right? Because mm-hmm. for those of you who don't know, Tanya is the author of Beyond Your Bubble, which a book that came out, does it, has it been two years now? Yeah, it came out in August 2000. Mm-hmm. Okay, August 2000. Um, a fantastic book that about basically talking across the political divide. And that's some of your re- your research is on that as well, right? Um, and so you've been on a lot of podcasts to talk about that book as an expert, on, as an expert on this topic that is really fraught and hot button and, you know, huge and of great importance right now. So so you are used to being the expert, right? So is it is it more just like you feel like, well, okay, that's what my research is about and that's what I'm a professor of and that's what I've written a book about. So you feel comfortable there. And it's more just like getting into these other areas that make you feel a little bit less ner- or more nervous about being interviewed. I think that's a great question because it's true. I've I've done an awful lot of podcasts and interviews about that material. And it, the funny thing is, it's not actually my area of research. My research mm. is all on LGBTQ stuff, mm. which I've also been on podcasts to talk about. Right. So I guess I do talk about things as the expert, but it's just like one episode of something. I'll go on and I'll be the expert. And it's not like I have to carry a whole like series of episodes where I have to keep like being the expert on something. So, and here's the great thing I like about memoir. The only thing I have to be an expert on is me. So it's like, I can't get anything wrong. So, (laughs) you know, nobody can challenge my, you know, lack of citation on something or whatnot. Because I'm like, yeah, just coming from my own experience. Yeah. And I guess that's why personal writing is like popular because people, you know, it's, they, you know, that's the cliche, right? Write what you know. Um, and then ideally make it universal somehow. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. That makes sense to me. I guess the I want to dive into specific questions about this essay or piece. Um, right. And first of all, the I guess you already talked a little bit about the impetus behind it. You told us the, the story mm-hmm. of how it came to be. So our next question then is... But wait, wait. I could say more about that. Oh, okay. Just, great. Awesome. Just because I want to say... The context in which all of the stuff that happened in Charlottesville went down is that I was I was flying to Argentina that day. And so like I heard about what was happening and then I had to get on a plane and I had no idea, you know, what was gonna mm. come of it. And mm-hmm. it was just it was such a moment and I I haven't lived in Charlottesville in a long time, but I was, you know, watching all my friends who were there posting about it and and so I was I was feeling very connected to it. And then certainly, you know, after everything that went down, I was feeling you know, it's it's not my thing that happened. It didn't happen to me. I wasn't there, but I I very much felt a connection with with it nonetheless. Right, right. Yeah, that must be very weird to be to be far away um, and to be wondering what's happening in this place that was so important to you, and to feel connected but not connected. All this super complicated questions about like what is what does it mean to be from a place? And I mean, just 
after the Unite the Right rally happened, all of a sudden this bucolic, beautiful, amazing town that you were from is now, as you say in the piece itself, like has become like a watchword or a kind of a, mm-hmm. a an expression or saying. I mean, I was born in Allentown, which up until <laughs> all we have is the Billy Joel song. I know I was about to say. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, I mean, when I say I'm, I'm was born in Allentown, people were like, "Oh, they're they're closing all the factories down, <laughs> whatever." But um, but it's not it doesn't have quite. So yeah, it doesn't have quite the same. It's still negative. It's like oh, that depressed place right mm-hmm. um but anyway yeah so that's that's really interesting that's actually a question i was going to ask you later but um it sort of organically connects to that idea of, of wondering what's happening in a place that you're far away from um so what do you looking back on this essay now is there anything that you don't like about it or that you want to change or that you would do differently i think it mostly says what i have to say because, you know, you describe, oh, this like lovely bucolic town. Yes. And it was complicated even back then. Mm. Um, Charlottesville has a real history of racial things. I mean, mm-hmm. not long before I was in high school, there were two high schools um, because it was still segregated. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, you know, it... I mean, I went to high school in 1980, and so it's, you know, which still sounds very current to me, but apparently a long time has passed since then. (laughs) Right? I know. I know. There are people who were born well after that. Yeah. But it, you know, it wasn't that long since segregation. And there's a whole area of town that, you know, where where African-American people were displaced from that to build things. And there's, there's, there's a lot of history of things that have happened there. And, and at the same time, there's a lot that's changed since then. And then, you know, what happened with Unite the Right was people coming in from outside. But I, I don't want to sort of position Charlottesville as being so pristine before that racially. Sure. Um, And I think that that's part of, but part of why I needed to write this was because of the very complication of it all. It's, Mm -hmm. it's not simple enough to say, Oh, these people came in from the outside. It's not simple enough to say like, you know, it was one thing or another because it was a lot of things. And, and I grew up there as a, you know, as a Chinese Jewish person Mm -hmm. in a town that was very black and white and lots of people asking, you know, what are you, what are you? Cause I didn't Mm. seem to fit into anything exactly. And, um, and at the same time, my experience there, I didn't experience a lot of overt racial anything toward mm-hmm. me. So it's it's just a lot of observations that kind of together make up one perspective uh, that I have. And, you know, certainly there are so many others. Yeah. So, so then do you feel like you would ever want to expand this? Um, I mean, I feel like the way it's structured now is there's lots of um, like hyperlinks, <laughs> right? There's like mm. references to things that you could like metaphorically click on and think about more or, or you know, or expand. Um, but in a way that makes it very economical, right? It's just kind of like these mm. these moments or or gestures or images that are 
very resonant and kind of open out into these other possibilities. Uh, so would you ever want to expand those or do you really just do you really like the kind of compactness of it and that the, and that each of these kind of moments is mm-hmm. evocative, but not necessarily fleshing out a full idea? I feel like I could talk about any of them, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't know that I would write it differently. But mm-hmm. yes, there was a whole thing that happened at my high school because there was this article about 17 years after desegregation and they were quotes in the paper from various students, but it didn't contextualize the quotes at all in terms of what the ethnic background was of the students or anything. Hmm. And so some of the comments sounded incredibly racist if you thought white people said them. Although it turns out that, that I think it was black students who said the things that sounded racist, but if you knew that they were black students who said them, they didn't sound as racist. Right. But there wasn't that context. And so there was there, you know, people were very upset reading this and the African-American students were very upset reading this. And, and so there was, there really was scary things that happened. Students gathering in the cafeteria, someone getting pushed into the classroom that I was in, and then all these people pouring in. And, but then, I mean, nothing happened out of that. But then there was racist spray paint. It was probably from a rival high school, but the editor of the school paper had to have like a security detail. I mean, it was like, was getting threats. There were all these things that happened. We were not okay racially in 1983, but we just mostly didn't talk about it. And honestly, when I was planning my, um, my high school reunion, I can't remember what reunion it was, maybe 20 years or something. And we came together, you know, with a bunch of people who had different racial backgrounds. And I heard some things from people then that I just wasn't even aware of Hmm. in terms of some of the tensions that existed. So do you feel like there was like kind of another whole world of tension? Like you said that you were in a kind of an interesting position because you were Chinese and Jewish. You weren't white, but you weren't black. You weren't like part of the the preset dynamics that were already there. So you could like kind of move in different ways through those conflicts or? Yes, but I was also a faculty kid and I was mm. in all of the, you know, honors classes. And so I was, you know, I would say class-wise, I was sort of in a certain, you know, group. Um, and so I probably more got thrown in with being white. Um, mm. And and I very much wanted to fit in when I was uh, growing up. And so that, that, I think, was something I probably wasn't conscious of at the time, but was working on. Right. So you mentioned in the story that you'd never got to visit your best friend's black church. Mm -hmm. Um, What was the story behind that? So my best friend uh, was black and was very involved in her Baptist church. Her dad was a deacon and Mm. um, it was just never um, on the table. It felt like, Mm -hmm. and really I had, I had, you know, another good friend who was Catholic and I was, I would spend a lot of time hanging out at her house. And sometimes I would go to mass with her family and things. And it was, and, and that was like, of course you should come, you know, but I don't think I ever was invited to Mm. come to the black Baptist church. And I think I would have been very out of place there. Hmm. Yeah. 
That's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting how these things like maybe you didn't even realize it at the time. Looking back sometimes on these situations with, with older eyes, we realize the the gaps or omissions or silences mm-hmm. that were not noticeable to us at the time. Like, why didn't I? You know, why was it just understood that we did things this way? Like, why was right. it just understood? I mean, I think about that a lot. My my own high school was overwhelmingly white. I mean, we had like, you know, a few black kids in my school, mm-hmm. but it was mostly white. Uh, you know, it was a white flight suburb of Philadelphia. And um, yeah, and it's more like looking back at pictures and stuff now. I'm like, what is up? And now my my eyes are different, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I think like, what is up with this place? Like, what is this bizarre? And and what are all the things that went into making it that way? And um, but yeah, when you're a kid, you just it's it's your world. So you don't you don't really have the the analytical tools necessarily to think about things in a bigger structural way, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, yeah. I don't want to generalize. Sometimes you do, but sometimes you don't. Um, so I, I'm just noticing it's exactly, pr- well, pretty much to the day, five years mm-hmm. since the Unite the Right rally. Um, do you think people still feel about Charlottesville the same way? I mean, you know, you talk about how it be- had become a watchword. Do you think that's still the case? Like when people say Charlottesville now, is it still that meaning that it had right after the rally? People still say it. People still talk about Charlottesville. Mm. And mm-hmm. in fact, NPR did a bunch of stuff on, um, you know, it's five years since Charlottesville. And, you know, and, and Charlottesville, it's not a place now. It's an event. Yeah. Um, although some people, you know, there have been so many other places that have meaning, like Ferguson and, you know, right. like there's all these. And so sometimes people are like, oh, right. What what was the terrible thing that happened in Charlottesville? You know, it's it, uh, because there have been so many terrible things that have happened since then. Yeah. That is such an interesting phenomenon, right? Like, I, I think like Ferguson is one. Charlottesville. Well, Uvalde. Yeah. Uvalde for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess I'm just now I'm just thinking of this kind of dispassionately as like a language person, you know, like, how does that happen? Mm. Why does it? I guess it's it has to be it has to be a small enough place that there isn't anything else for which it might possibly be famous. Right. For one Mm. thing, it has to become like the name itself of the town has to become like evacuated of all other possible signification. Sorry to be mm-hmm. <laughs> sorry to be wonky there for a second. <laughs> but um yeah, like like you can't just say like Atlanta, even though a lot of like terrible racial crimes have happened in Atlanta, you can't just mm-hmm. say Atlanta as a kind of, you know, shorthand for one particular event because it's a big city and lots of stuff happens there. Right. Um so yeah, it's right. Weird. Like nine eleven we talk about as nine eleven we don't yeah. say New York City, you know, it's like Right. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, there was a horrible um, mass shooting in Santa Barbara, but we don't say Santa Barbara mm. for, to, to refer to that because mm-hmm. it's just it's too big a place. Or like the Pulse nightclub, right? That was a thing that happened in that particular nightclub, not in that city. Anyway, maybe mm-hmm. this isn't that interesting, but I'm kind of interested in those questions of like mm. how things come to shift their meanings in that way. Um so I so as as your homework before <laughs> before doing this. Uh, recording, I'd ask you to go back and look at that Tina Fey sketch, right? So um, I don't know. I Again, I don't know if we're going to have show notes or not. Like I, that sounds so professional and cool. Like I want us to have yes, show notes. Yes, we, we will. We will have show notes. With okay. <laughs> so I'll put the link to the YouTube video in the show notes for those who want to find it easily. But like just a few days after the rally, there was this kind of infamous sketch where Tina Fey went on Saturday Night Live on Weekend Update. And did this 
very funny little sketch, right, where she like starts eating a sheet cake and saying like, eat your feelings. And, you know, like, this is all we can do. And she caught a lot of flack for it because people interpreted it as her saying, um, oh, just, you know, she says at the end, don't go to the rally. Uh, don't go to the rallies because there, there was, uh, I don't know if you remember, like we were all so anxious. Like there were so many follow-up rallies scheduled for that mm-hmm. weekend and that, that kind of petered out. But at the at the moment that she was uh, making the sketch, we were all really worried about that. There was going to be this like huge flare up of like response violence. And so she was just saying like, you know, stay home and eat cake instead of like fueling the fire by going to the to rallies to, to counter protest, right? Mm-hmm. And so she got all this flack from people saying like, oh, easy for you, privileged white woman to just, you can just stay at home and eat cake. It's like literally like Marie Antoinette, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, And I mean, at the time, I'm just going to like say how I feel about it. And then Mm -hmm. I want to hear how you feel about it. Like at the time, like I I watched the sketch and I thought it was really funny. And then the moment when she says, oh, just stay home, I was like, eh, I don't know if that's exactly the right thing tactic like tactically to do but I wasn't like mad at her for saying it. And then I read all the the flack and the the you know the and, and the fact that she actually apologized as well and I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah, okay, that maybe wasn't that cool, right? I can see how it can be read this way now, but I it wasn't something I thought of immediately." And now going back and watching it again 5 years later, I'm back to thinking like, that's kind of funny. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it feels like Mm -hmm. the moment of outrage has passed or something for me anyway. But I want to hear what you think. Did you still, what was your reaction when you saw it? Um, Did you agree with the critique of it? And how do you feel about it now? I saw that sketch for the first time an hour ago. Oh, no. (laughs) Okay. So, all right. (laughs) All right. So then just tell us what you think of it from this perspective. No, but it's fascinating. I've never seen it. Remember. I was in Argentina right afterwards. So oh, I right, was actually yeah. like, like not so connected into right, all right. of the aftermath that was, that was unfolding. So yeah, I hadn't seen it. It was fascinating. And I thought her point was very clear that yeah. she's not really saying go to a bakery and get a cake and just eat, you know, because as she's eating this cake, she's laying out all of these atrocities that go on, you know, and how horrible everything is. So she's obviously saying, oh my gosh, things are terrible, you know, so I didn't take her saying don't go seriously, but I can see how in the moment that would have been, you know, a completely different situation. Yeah. Yeah. I I just think, again, it's such an interesting question because like, you know, we're on such a hot cycle now, all of us on the internet. And, uh, you know, we just like reaction, reaction, counter reaction, you know, anger. And this is your research or your book, right? About this precise phenomenon of people just kind of like being very reactive. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I have a soft spot for Tina Fey. Like, you know, she, we have the same exact life. Like, She's from Upper Darby. I'm from Newtown Square. We both like did musical theater as like repertory. You know what I mean? Like everything, all that, like she had a million gay theater kid friends. So did I, like everything's the same. Mm -hmm. And so, and we're, you know, roughly the same age. So I always kind of feel like when she gets like pounced on, I'm like, yeah, that sucks. Mm. I'm like, I too am just a clueless white middle-aged lady. I want to. I want to be cooler than that. But I guess if I'm not as cool as Tina Fey, then what hope is there, or something like that? (laughs) And I mean, the other thing that I thought about it is Mm -hmm. that she was just 
she was showing the struggle that people were having around this. Yeah. You know, she's yeah. like, what on earth are we supposed to do with this? Like, like she's just like eating all of this cake because she just can't. It's like she's she's playing this part of I just can't fathom how to deal with this. So I'm just going to throw myself into this cake. And it's a little bit sort of how I wrote this piece. It's like, like, what do you do with the complication of all of this? You know, mm-hmm. for me, like, like trying to lay out because people are like, oh, you know, you're from Charlottesville. What's this like for you? And there wasn't an answer. There wasn't something I could say because yeah. I have a whole lifetime of relationship with Charlottesville. And right. most people had just that moment. So in some ways, I sort of felt like, yeah, I get it. It's you, There's not like a simple response. And I was thinking about the, um, there's a line from Rent, the opposite of war isn't peace, it's creation. Mm. And I was yeah. thinking, sometimes it's impossible to know what to do in the face of atrocities. And so you just need to create. Mm. That's lovely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really great. And that you wrote this piece in that, you know, coming out of that kind of moment of confusion, but also like sadness and loss for you personally. And like, there is something really sad about losing an idea of your home. Like, mm-hmm. you know, e- even just being required to shift your sense of it or to be defensive about it or to have to explain it to people or to every time you say where you're from, having to have like that little moment of like, oh, you're from, you know, that place. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a loss. And that's like, you know, we spend so much time gradually losing our homes over the course of our lives that like having somebody make it happen a little faster is really <laughs> it's not fun, right? Um, yeah, I think it's the, that's one of the things I really like about it is it's like it blends together the personal with this bigger question about racial tension and and race relations, history of race relations in this country in general, in the South, in that particular town. It's just so, that's what I meant about the hyperlinks. Like, there's so many different avenues that it branch could branch out from it, and that it refers to in this very kind of um, beautifully compact way. Maybe so, we'll just spend the next few episodes like unpacking this one piece. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right, you could do that with almost anything. Honestly, we could just like become like really navel gazy and just like let's let's pull this thing apart. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what I do for a living. I I guess <laughs> that's how my students perceive of it. Anyway, um, so one final question for you, mm-hmm. uh, which is. Cu- related to this piece but but not completely and that is do you do you think of yourself as a southerner mm, interesting question mm-hmm. i appreciate very much that i grew up and have lived in different parts of the country so mm-hmm. i i grew up in charlotte well i was actually born in southern california but we mm-hmm. left when i was two grew up in charlottesville lived in philadelphia that's where we met mm-hmm. and then i was in arizona and D.C. and Memphis before I ended up in Santa Barbara. So when I moved to Memphis, I thought, oh, well, yeah, Memphis, like I've lived in the South. I grew up in Charlottesville. Oh, my gosh, I had no idea. Mm -hmm, (laughs) Memphis mm -hmm. South is very different from Mm -hmm. Charlottesville South. And so, so 
Yes, I do think of myself in some ways as a Southerner because I do like, I also get things about, um, about different parts of our country and different people in our country because I have lived in different places. And so, yes, Southerner, but also so much Californian. I mean, just, uh, you know, my, my life and a lot of my values and, you know, all of these things are very consistent with California. But I'm glad that I've lived a lot of different places. And Mm. I don't know, I'm, I'm curious, you live in the South. And Mm -hmm. so what, what's your relationship to the South? Well, um, so I was born in Allentown, but then I, you know, I lived for a couple of years in Connecticut and then most of my life was suburban Philadelphia and then went to Penn undergrad. And then I guess, I mean, grad school in Chicago and then moving around a lot since then with academic jobs. But my parents, the my complicating factors, my parents moved from Philadelphia to North Carolina when I was, I think my, like my sophomore year of college. So, you know, very early. So they lived in in North Carolina for 30 years. And so for the last 30 years of their lives, I visited them there and thought of that and really came to think of Asheville, North Carolina and the in mountains in, in the Western part of the state as like my new home. In fact, it was my home. My parents were there way longer than they were in the house that I grew up in. Right. Mm-hmm. For example. So, and then my first academic job or one of my first academic jobs was at Mississippi State. And then I went to Vancouver for 13 years and then came back to Mississippi. So yeah, super complicated. <laughs> it's like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not a Southerner, but I've lived, I have like, my family connections are here now. And I've have so many friend connections and I live here now. So yeah, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, one of the reasons I asked that question is like, Unless, you know, it's a cliche, but it's absolutely true. Unless you were born here and you're like, you know, grandparents are from here, people don't really consider you to be of a of a place in the South. You know what I mean? Like, sure. it's a, yeah, like, and uh, people who live in Oxford, and we really do refer to ourselves as Oxonians hilariously, even though it's, not, <laughs> even though it's Oxford, Mississippi, not Oxford, England. Um, we Oxonians uh, are... You know, the people who grew up here are, are super friendly and and open and warm and every single possible cliche you could po- imagine about Southern hospitality and, and warmth and, and all of generosity. Um, and also the cliches about, yeah, well, they all know who grew up here and who didn't. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, even if you're from like Tupelo, <laughs> you know, it's not the same as being from Oxford. So right. anyway, that's a very long answer to your question, yeah. which is... Yeah, I appreciate the South. I'll never be a Southerner, really. But um, well, and I think that the fact that you know my parents are not Southerners mm-hmm. and my grandparents are not Southerners, mm-hmm, you know that mm-hmm. there's no other part of my family that's lived in the South. Um, right. Although my dad has been in the Atlanta area for a while now, but but also I've I feel like my my extended family and actually a lot of people I know, like a lot of my Northeastern friends, especially, you know, think of the South as a very scary place. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and the South doesn't scare me, I think in the way that it could, if I, if I hadn't lived in the South. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't get that. So, okay. So I don't know if you saw 
a couple days ago, there was a little tiny short piece by Andrew Sean Greer. I posted it on Facebook, actually, who is the author of that novel, Less, which if you haven't read Less, go and read it immediately. It is fantastic. It is one of my favorite novels of the past 20 years. It is brilliant, hilarious, poignant, amazing. Um, And he's, he's a gay white man. And he wrote this little piece in Esquire that was like, you know, for my next book, I wanted to do something that would challenge you, blah, blah, blah. It's like, what's the the most terrifying, horrifying thing I could think of? And all of a sudden it came to me in all caps, Alabama. And then, mm-hmm. so he goes to Alabama, but just like the little description of it is like, you know, I was sitting at a bar next to a guy with one arm and someone else in the jukebox and the no, 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 no. And I was just like, oh my God. I just like, I was so irritated immediately. Mm-hmm. It was every, every cliche that you could possibly imagine, but also the kind of the local color. And I was just like, blech, you know? <laughs> um, and so I was annoyed, even though I'm sure the book will be great because he's an amazing writer. And who knows? I mean, maybe the tone of that, he develops it and more and it becomes more clear that it's ironic or something. I don't know. But um, anyway, yeah, I, I get that that weird thing that people have about the South, about how terrifying it is. I don't, I don't understand it exactly. It's no more terrifying here than anywhere else. There's, you know, there's racism everywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. okay, let me let me say, as a white person, of course, I have the privilege of not being afraid um, anywhere I go, really. Um, mm-hmm. So I get that the the South is potentially more scary for Black people, but it's not usually Black people I hear saying that. It's almost always white people right. who, are, who talk about how scary they find the South and how they're mm-hmm. worried they're going to get shot and Blah, blah, blah. Well, and I think some of that is, you know, uh, perceptions and, and and the representations of the South that mm-hmm. that people have in their minds and from media and things like that. So as far as I can tell, it's not as much from people's actual experiences in the South and with people who live in the South. Oh, yeah. It's like deliverance and, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and whatnot. Exactly. Yeah. It's mostly um, deliverance. Yeah, exactly. So... But yeah, and of course, then the, one of the reasons I asked you the question is like, you know, being from Virginia is not really being from the South, according to people from Mississippi and Alabama or whatever. So like there's even like it's almost like colorism, you know, where you've got like this geographical region where people within the region are are creating these hierarchies. There's gradations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gradations within the region um, that like, you know, Virginia is like not really Southern enough or something. It's not marked enough as Southern. So. Anyway, um, okay, I guess that's that's all of my questions for you. And thank you, thank you so much for sharing so generously your thoughts about Charlottesville and about the writing process and about being Southern or not. Um, this was really fun. I really, really enjoyed getting to hear some more thoughts and have you flesh out some of the things from the story. So I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for your questions and for introducing me to that Tina Fey piece that I hadn't seen before. (laughs) It's kind of funny, right? I mean, I don't think it's that bad, but uh, who knows? I mean, you know, things, uh, attitudes get softened over time. So maybe we were all just in a moment then and, you know, maybe it's not really as bad as we thought it was. So (laughs) anyway, all right, well, we'll see you next week. And I guess we're back to me being on the hot seat then. So looking forward to it. Okay. Thanks, Tanya. Bye. Bye. Listeners, if you liked what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and share so more folks can find us. You can follow us on social media at Dr. Wafflepod, that's D-R Wafflepod, all one word, or email us at drwafflepod at gmail.com. 
Check out the show notes for websites and other info. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.